Hello and welcome to Call to Queer, where we hold space for the queer Mormon women, non-binary, and trans experiences. I'm Colette and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Kate and my pronouns are she, they. Today, Kate's going to share more of their story in depth, but before we jump into that, we wanted to start off by seeing what brought us queer joy this week. So Kate, what brought you queer joy? I'm actually on vacation in Brasov, Romania, and today I was out and about with Fulbrighters and I was wearing my rainbow true to you t-shirt, which I always am pretty <laughs> queer coded. I constantly have my glasses are rainbow. Everything's rainbow. So yeah, I, I sometimes get questions about that. And today <laughs> at dinner, somebody asked, one of the people I was with asked about it and he just said, I just love your shirt. I understand what it means. This is a Romanian. I understand what it means. I love your shirt. You know, keep doing you. And that was just such an affirming moment to have a Romanian say that to me, you know. That's huge. That is incredible. Major queer joy. Yeah, it was great. Okay, how about you? I'm getting excited here in a couple hours. I'm going on a little trip with a couple, a friend and her wife. And I just love spending time with queer couples. It just seeing them happy gives me queer joy, especially knowing this friend and how much she's been through to get to this point. You know, they're not shoving their sexuality in anyone's faces. They're just living their life. And I'm excited to go spend time with them and relax and just be with them. And also excited to hopefully have my own partnership like that one day. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And I hope that it's wonderful. Can't wait to hear back when you report on it. Yeah, that can be my career join next time. Yes, <laughs> probably. Perfect. <laughs> love it. So today I'm excited to hear more about your story, Kate. I know you've shared it in multiple places and you are pretty public, but I would love to just hear more about what you want to share with our audience and what your story is like being a non-binary lesbian that grew up Mormon. Yeah, I guess going off of your lead from last time, you had a 60, a 60 second, which turned into longer than 60 seconds because I interrupted you, but 60 second <laughs> brief overview of intro. What do you call it? What did you say you called this? Queer in 60 seconds. Queer in 60 <laughs> seconds. Let's see if I can do queer in 60 seconds. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I think that I knew pretty early on that I was queer and not knowing exactly what that was because I actually manage multiple letters in the LGBTQ, I don't know, alphabet, um, <laughs> alphabet mafia, I am going to just use that. And so I think it was hard for me to unpack what was one thing versus what was another thing. But I understood myself to be different early on. I understood that my gender, what I liked, what I wanted to do, the way I presented, all of those things were both feminine and masculine. And I loved all those things about me, but there were certain things that were, I was told early on to shut off mm -hmm. and to not be proud of or not excel in. And that was really hard. So then I 
I don't know. I, I think I probably recognized that I liked women, girls at that point when I was probably 16, but I didn't really, I was, I didn't have the language to talk about it. I didn't know how to say that, say what was going on for me, but I recognized that I had crushes and I hoped that my crushes had crushes back, but I don't, yeah. I don't know that they, you know, they never voiced those things. So there's a lot of shame in feeling that. And I didn't want to admit that those are the sorts of feelings I was feeling. By the time I was 16, I had a lot of suicidal ideation, suicidality. I started self-harming between 15 and 16, which for non-binary and trans folks, you don't even need the language for non-binary and trans folks. That's self-harm is like, through the roof and it's interesting to reflect on that but yeah so yeah. 16 I started I, I really struggled by 17 I went from being the Laurel president to being inactive I stopped going to seminary I was I was just kind of done with the church and I didn't really have concrete reasons for that by 19 I had had a suicide attempt. I was in the hospital in Salt Lake City at LDS Hospital for a couple of weeks. Yeah, all of that was really challenging, really difficult. Sure. And by the time I, I think, I think it was not for a couple of years, I decided, yeah, I have to come out. I came out to my brother who rejected me, didn't talk to me for months. We lived in the same house and he was... Mm. I want nothing to do with you. And mm. my mom was like, what's going on between you two? You used to be best friends and now he's not even talking to you. And my, she asked my brother and my brother said, go talk to Kate. And I told my mom, I think I'm bisexual. And my mom said, you're experimenting. Don't tell your dad. Just enough for me two really bad experiences right in a row for enough for me to go right back into the closet. Mm -hmm. And I remained there for mm -hmm. many years. I eventually came back to church when I was 26. I had this conversion back to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through like a very personal intense conversion that I think of as like a, a revelatory vision process that I think it's it's really important to my story it's really cool I went from being doing all sorts of behaviors that were not bringing me any happiness to the next day being fully committed to the church and I think that helped me a lot, but it continued to hide my queerness. And eventually, so that was at 26 and I didn't really quite understand how, how much I needed to be out until I was 31. And I'd fallen in love actually with, I was, I was engaged to a man and fell in love with a woman. And that was a really, it was, it was a hard challenge, but I couldn't stay in the closet any longer after that. And 
yeah, it was, so that was 2018. And finally, by 2020, last year, almost exactly a year ago now, I also came out as non-binary, which really kind of completed my queer journey of, of coming out and fully embracing myself. Wow. So much to dig into here. Thank you for providing that overview. I'm kind of curious what being non-binary means to you. I feel like that is an experience that we don't hear as much about in the church, especially if you could talk about what that experience is like being in a church that is pretty gendered. Yeah, great. Thank you. So being non-binary is so different for every non-binary person. It's hard. It's really hard to pinpoint what that means. And in your episode, we talked last time we talked about labels and you talked about labels. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is one label. It doesn't really explain what somebody is very well, especially because you have the transgender umbrella. Transgender mm-hmm. means that you were assigned a gender at birth that you do not identify with. Mm-hmm. And for non-binary folks that we, lots of us also identify as transgender. So there's that broad umbrella. And then under that umbrella, you have, you, you definitely have non-binary. And then under the non-binary umbrella, you have a gender which means you lack any sort of gender. And so I sometimes compare my experience to an agender experience. Both of us are under the non-binary flag or Mm -hmm. under the non-binary umbrella, but where an agender person doesn't see themselves as having any gender, I see Mm -hmm. myself as having all the gender. Okay. (laughs) I, I often call myself gender expansive in that I want all the gender all the time. Just like, give me, feed me the gender. That's what Uh I want. Because I feel like there's so often that I was cut off. So often in my life, I've been cut off from my femininity. And so often I've been cut off from my masculinity. And I want to breed both of those things. I don't want to have to pick one or the other. I want to, I want all parts of me to, to be able to be allowed. I love that. But what was that like growing up in a very gendered church? Great. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for your second question. So for me, I often refer to myself as assigned female at birth because Mm -hmm. within the Mormon context, when you're assigned female at birth, there are certain rituals and things that you must go through that somebody who is assigned male at birth doesn't go through. And somebody who's assigned male at birth goes through different rituals and things that mm-hmm. somebody who's a fine assigned female at birth doesn't go through. And so that's one that right off the bat, that's one thing mm-hmm. for to be able to talk about your assigned gender at birth because it impacts your everyday experience within within your life because your life is the church right oftentimes are like we're going to young men's and we're going to young women's and who Mm -hmm. your friends are going to be at young women's and Mm -hmm. the different talks that you're having in Sunday school on Sunday Mm -hmm. because you're assigned female versus assigned Mm -hmm. male those are really important distinctions for me to talk about being assigned female at birth 
versus being assigned male at birth because I have those gendered experiences. And so even to be able to talk within the non-binary community, within the queer community about gender, it's my, my gender language, the way I think about gender is so clouded, it's so painted by growing up in a very gendered church that mm -hmm. that I talk about it very differently than somebody who wasn't who hasn't grown up in that environment because they haven't had to be segregated so often right multiple times a week so it impacts everything so that's just like growing up right now right. how do I how do I think about this what do I think about going, if I were to go to the temple, what would that mean? Like there's no right. real place for me at the temple. What does it mean? You know, everything is gendered. Every single thing in the church is gendered. Mm -hmm. So there's constant gender dysphoria in thinking that I need to pick between the two and pick right between mm. the two. Between yeah, a binary that doesn't really exist. <laughs> yeah, that would be really difficult. And I'd, I'd be curious kind of what sort of pushback you receive by people who are living in this binary world where you don't see yourself, you know, have you had conversations with people in the church that pushed back against your experience or invalidate your experience? I, I almost wish that I did have those mm. conversations, but because gender is so ingrained in us that we think that we understand it and we think that we know what it means that for me to even talk about being non-binary even within queer spaces people don't know what that means they cannot grapple with <laughs> with gender very well they don't know mm -hmm. the difference between sex and gender they so it's, it's very hard for me to talk with Latter-day Saints about this stuff because they don't know. They just, they, they don't even have a foundation. So I've even been on queer podcasts where the folks interviewing me didn't understand or know how to address me, understand how they, they've, every podcast I've been on as a non-binary person, I've been called a I've been called a woman, and I've mm -hmm. asked them to ed edit those things out because mm -hmm. it's so ingrained that this is just what right. you are. Right. So it'd be great there to have more of those conversations, but it's it's at the it's in its infancy to be able to talk about this within the church right now. Yeah, that makes sense. Talk to me about your pronouns. I know a lot of people are confused when they see a combination like yours when you say my pronouns are she, they. What does that mean to you? You're gonna get a lot from me on this question. Great, so, I'm excited. <laughs> thank you for asking, first of all. My pronouns are she, they. Mixed pronouns are are becoming pretty common now for me the way that I see pronouns from somebody who studies and works with and lives in different places, uses different languages. Pronouns do not, my pronouns do not mean non-binary. My pronouns are just the pronouns that speak to me. So I think there are some people who will say they're not preferred pronouns, they're your pronouns. And I understand that position, but for me, 
working in other languages, they're, they are preferred pronouns because there are gonna be spaces where that just doesn't work. So because I operate so often in Romanian, which is a romance language, Romanian is so gendered that there is no neutral, there is no neuter. Mm -hmm. So third person singular and third person plural, both in Romanian are still gendered. <laughs> There's no such mm. thing as the neutral or the neuter. Okay. So for me, she was still very important because it allowed mm. for people who speak other languages, particularly people who speak romance languages to still address me without me. This was a way for me to protect myself from a sort of gender dysphoria that would come from somebody using she, she or she in another language. So that's why I kept it initially. So right mm -hmm. off the bat, when I came out as non-binary, I, I wanted to keep she for that reason, thinking about other languages. But as soon as I came out and people started using the they, them pronouns for me, like that was huge. I love them. I get so much gender euphoria from somebody using they, them pronouns. And there's even kind of a resentment that I have when people who are monolingual, who only speak English, use she pronouns and not they pronouns for me, because I've made that exception for people who didn't speak English as their first language or their primary language. And I've been, I've been pretty vocal about that, but that's still, it's still hard for people to understand why it's for me, why it's she, they. So typically somebody would use she, they, or mixed pronouns because they like them. Some people will use she, he, they, all of them, or neo-pronouns, all of these different things. They like all of the pronouns. Mm -hmm. um, pronouns are definitely important to me, but mm -hmm. so is decolonization. <laughs> and so my pronouns are, <laughs> are what they are because I also am very strongly, deeply um, passionate about decolonization and allowing space for language and thinking through language problems. Awesome. Thank you. That's a, definitely a lot to think about. And I think it goes to highlight, you know, each person is individual and different. And that's why I'm excited to highlight different people's stories, because I'm sure we'll have other non-binary people on here who have a different view of what pronouns mean to them and what their gender means to them. And it's it's always just so interesting to hear all these different stories. Talk to Absolutely. me more. You mentioned the term gender euphoria. Talk to me about what that means to you and what brings you gender euphoria. Often when we're talking about transgender and non-binary issues, we bring up so often gender dysphoria, what it means when you feel your gender is misrepresented, misunderstood, all of those sorts of things. That's what gender dysphoria is. And just like we highlight at the beginning of the mm -hmm. podcast, queer joy, there's the opposite, which is what makes you feel your gender and feel excited about your gender. For me, mm -hmm. definitely pronouns, being able to express myself in ways that I didn't think that I would be, or I've been shamed to before, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. growing up, there are lots of things that I loved, but somebody felt the need to shame me for. And so I thought I needed to hide that or tuck that away or mm -hmm. not do those things anymore or be those things anymore. And so 
gender euphoria for me is reclaiming those things. For instance, short hair. <laughs> My hair is short. I love short hair. I love going to a barber. I don't go to a hairdresser. I specifically go to a barber and I go to have a, not even a masculine experience, but man's experience. I go because I want to be around other men or be around men and have them talk to me like I am among them and cut my hair like they would a man's. Like that whole experience for me is gender euphoria. What a great example. I'm glad you've been able to experience that. I think it sounds like for a long time, you really wouldn't allow yourself to experience that. And you just pushed it down, just thinking this is the way it has to be. I was assigned female at birth. So this is my experience. So what was it like starting to embrace that I don't fit in this box that I've been put in? Actually, weirdly enough, this is kind of funny. The way that I finally understood my gender was not through anything masculine. It was through something feminine that I had tried to reject all of my life. And that is makeup. I was watching Schitt's Creek as all queers do. And (laughs) I noticed that, first of all, Daniel Levy is a genius and can portray gender in these really complex ways that Mm -hmm. I love and adore. But in mm-hmm. one, one way is that you might not recognize, but I recognized was he wears eyeshadow. It's mm-hmm. usually like pink or purple or something. And it's like very clear that he's wearing eyeshadow. And for me, that was a light bulb moment. For me, it was like, mm-hmm. I want to be him. <laughs> it oh. was never, I wanted to be a woman doing man things it was that I felt manly and wanted to be feminine in my manliness so I really heavily associated with his whole gender experience because suddenly I wasn't seeing myself as a woman doing man things I was seeing myself as this person that could be a man and a woman and enjoy those things all at once. So this thing that I'd rejected all of my life or all of my life, I refused to wear makeup. Like growing Mm -hmm. up, I really didn't ever want to wear makeup. I felt uncomfortable in it actually. And when a little bit later, when I was like, no, I'm really going to embrace this feminine side of me because I'm receiving a lot of feedback that this is what I feel normal for the first time. When I, when I decided to be all in, in my femininity, people treated me like I was normal before that, when I was these borderline things, Mm -hmm. my non-binary self, people treated me poorly because they couldn't understand my gender. But now that I'm all in, in femininity, people started treating me well, but I didn't, feel comfortable at all. I did not feel comfortable Mm. wearing makeup. I didn't feel Mm. comfortable in the clothes or whatever. I just like went with whatever anybody told me was good. And so Mm. makeup to me felt super uncomfortable. And then there's 
you get Dan Levy and I have this moment where it's like, oh, I can be like a sort of man wearing makeup. That's going to kind of be my identity. And suddenly mm-hmm. I fell in love with it. I loved being able to experiment in all of these different ways with makeup, femininity, the way I presented, the way I hold myself. I hold myself in a much more masculine way, like the way I walk or the way I mm-hmm. sit and those sorts of things, which came naturally to me as a kid and mm-hmm. people kind of shut down. So mm-hmm. I've kind of re-embraced those things. You talk about re-embracing. What was it like to come out multiple times, you know, (laughs) come out when you're younger and then have to go back in the closet, come out later, and then also come out with another identity? Yeah. (laughs) I think it's representative of the queer experience. I think you also, I think you understand this coming out multiple times. I think any person who's queer has to do it, come out so often. Allies and people who are not queer think that this is just like a one and done thing. Oh, you're out now, but it's not. (laughs) And there are certain places where you're not safe to be out too, right? So, So there's constantly a coming out. So I just learned that very early on. I mean, I definitely want to offer some advice to folks who aren't out. Make sure that you know the people who are going to be safe for you to come out because it definitely hindered me coming out Mm. to people who were unsafe and unaffirming. And I had no other, I had no one else to go to after that. I felt like two people, they responded really harshly. There is no way I was going to do that over again. (laughs) There's no way I was going to try that again and risk even another person rejecting me. So I do have the advice to make sure at least like you go to a group or, you know, come to one of us, something to be able to come out first, or as you have people who, who are there for you to come out to, who are going to be supportive and affirming. Coming out was also a really big process for me. I don't, mean to participate in bi erasure, but I came out as bisexual first off. And that happens for some folks. Like their mm-hmm. bisexuality is a real thing. Pansexuality mm-hmm. is a real thing. But for mm-hmm. me, that's not how I identify, but I did use it as a jumping off point. How how are people going to react to my coming out as bisexual? And it didn't go so great. So then the next step was maybe I'll come out as bisexual again and see how it goes. So the next time I came out, I was 31 to my mom who I'd come out previously to. And I said, Hey, I'm coming out as, or I'm bisexual. Remember we had that conversation a long, long time ago. And she said to me the second time, so does this mean I'm not having grandchildren? <laughs> and I was like, no, <laughs> stop <laughs> responding poorly. But it was still like a treading out into these waters, you know? And then when I finally like decided this is who I am, this is what I'm, I'm standing in my truth. I'm coming out publicly as a lesbian. Like I had to go through a lot of those processes. So by the time I came out as a lesbian, it made the next step a little bit easier. Every step is a little bit easier, but I mean, there's still a lot of discomfort 
gender dysphoria, so much insecurity about my gender, more so than my sexuality. At this point, I'm really comfortable in talking about and claiming my sexuality, but my gender is much harder because it's so often unaffirmed still, right? So there are lots Mm -hmm. of spaces where I can be affirmed, even in Mormon spaces, I can be affirmed for my sexuality, but people just don't understand my gender. And so that's, each coming out has just been, you know, a little bit further, getting me a little Mm -hmm. bit further along in the process. Yeah, I think it is a very interesting experience. I think you know, if we look at the idea of boxes, it's like, oh, this person's non-binary, this person's lesbian, this person's gay, you know, and you are both non-binary and lesbian. And I think that probably confuses some people. (laughs) Like, how can you be a lesbian if you're non-binary? What would you say to that? Oh my goodness. This is such a great question because it was the first question I asked myself because when I was trying to come out, as non-binary when I was thinking about what that meant for me, what that meant for my relationships, those sorts of things. It always came back to me that I felt and understood and knew myself to be a lesbian. So I didn't want to let go of that identity because it, it meant so much for me to claim that. It took so long for me to claim that, that I wasn't going to give it up. And Finally, what I recognized for myself was I was raised Mormon. I was raised a Latter-day Saint. And so I constantly had those gendered experiences. It meant something that I was assigned female at birth. It doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that I am female, that I feel female, that I associate with my femaleness. It meant that somebody else associated me with that. Mm -hmm. assignment at birth and that impacted my sexuality the Mm -hmm. that assignment at birth impacted who I thought I could love and so challenging that and recognizing who I do love and and who I was cut off from loving that's what makes my lesbianness so important to me is that I had been cut off from that and I refuse to be cut off from that any longer. So that's why I keep the lesbian identity. This is kind of <laughs> new language. That's how I'll put it. This is new language for us to use. And there are a lot more people who are coming out as non-binary lesbians. I think probably for similar reasons that they feel Mm -hmm. like they've been cut off from that sexuality. It didn't matter that they were non-binary. What mattered growing up was the assignment, the assigned gender at birth. Right. Tricky stuff. (laughs) It was the first question I had. I, so I'm in a PhD program in, at the University of California, Riverside. I'm in a history department and my friend's Lots of them do gender studies, gender theory, and queer theory as well. So we have these mm-hmm. conversations, very intellectual conversations. And so I asked them, can I be out and can I be non-binary and a lesbian? And my friends were like, yes, of course. <laughs> so for me, that was the first question I had too. Like, can I still claim all of these things at once? And yeah, I can. And I think that is a profound question a lot of people ask ourselves is, can I claim these identities at once? Can I claim both being queer and Mormon? 
you know, for example. And again, going back to that discussion of labels, I think labels can be helpful until they're not. Like they're not supposed to be limiting for you. The way I view labels is they're helpful in you quickly communicating your experience and being able to find your people. It's not supposed to limit you and put yourself back into a box of you can't be both of these things. You can't be all of these identities. Yeah, definitely. And I I would be curious, you know, you've really have claimed the Mormon label as well. And so you have three seemingly incompatible labels. How do you work with that? How do you, how do you deal with that in life? Yeah, well, I, I strongly associate with my Latter-day Saint identity because I had such a strong conversion back to church and it's really painful for me when people want to tell me that I'm not Mm. a Latter-day Saint because I am queer or because I fell in love with a woman or whatever they want to say they're Mm -hmm. taking away a really divine experience that is part of me and part of my soul. And all of these things are very much part of me. That's why I, that's why I want all of those labels. They, they mean something very deeply to me. And my Latter-day Saint identity means something to me. It's going to mean something to everybody differently, right? Some people, it's just going to be their heritage. Some people, it's just going to be what they do on Sunday. It's going to mean different things to different people. But for me, it was the way that I reconnected to divine and also actually to my personal conversion and relationship and belief in a Jesus Christ. Right. That for me is really crucial because that belief held a lot of healing for me in that I understood, and especially, I would say, especially when I was coming out as lesbian, as non-binary, I relied so heavily on a relationship with an understanding of Jesus Christ and an atonement where there was a, it didn't matter that I felt completely alone, that there wasn't anybody that understood what I was going through because to be frank, nobody understood what I was going through. And people were very open in expressing how they did not understand what I was going through, but I could always rely on that conversion that I knew that there was a divine that loved me and understood me. And I could always rely on a concept of Jesus Christ as a person that, that felt what I felt. That is Mm -hmm. something that I appreciate about Latter-day Saint theology, that there is a being, a divine being that understands you so wholly and completely and has felt what you felt and you can connect with that being Mm -hmm. that, that, literally saved my life that belief literally saved my life I don't really care about the truthfulness like we put Mm -hmm. in quotations we talk about the truth or the knowledge of the gospel all those things that doesn't matter to me what matters to me is that I know 
what I felt. And I'm not going to deny what I've felt any longer. So many people have asked me to deny so many things about myself. Mm. And I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to deny my own experiences anymore. And that's why all of those labels are important to me because it's a, an acknowledgement that I'm not denying those things any longer. That's a powerful statement. I'm not going to deny my experiences anymore and just show up as a full you. But you mentioned the being engaged to a guy. Is that something you can talk about more and what that experience was like as you were coming to terms with your sexuality? Yeah, I was engaged to a man and in love with a woman. And the reason that I got engaged to a man was he was interesting and attractive. I met him in Romania. He was studying in Romania. He is actually from Nigeria, going to school um, here. And it kind of just happened to be that we met at church. He was Mm -hmm. a Latter-day Saint. There were things that I could find about him that I was like yep this is why we could be together yep this is why we could be together but I wasn't connecting with him I wasn't wanting to talk with him all the time I wasn't wanting to be with him all the time he was the person that was going to be part of my eternal salvation Mm -hmm. and yeah it It turns out that Mormonism is really great for having a shared culture, no matter where you are in the world. But sometimes we don't talk about the way that that breaks down in places around the world. So sometimes missionaries are baptizing people without explaining all that goes into being a Latter-day Saint. And I think that we think that everybody understands what it means to be a Latter-day Saint and everybody understands, for instance, the law of chastity. Mm -hmm. And this person did not understand the law of chastity. And so we'd had that conversation multiple times. No, we're not doing this because it's, we can't get married in the temple. And he, that concept was not getting through to him. And I said, no, 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 many, many times. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. ultimately it came down to, I could say no one more time. Or, you know, if I said yes, I wouldn't be gay anymore. And I didn't want to do what he was asking me to do. I Mm -hmm. said no many times Mm -hmm. and He pursued and continued asking, and I felt like I was trapped. Either I can do this or, and because this thing is not going to be as bad as being gay, it's going to be. And it was, it was, it was way, way worse. It was a horrible experience. I left that night I left a ring on the table, didn't even, didn't even really say a proper goodbye or whatever, but I was just, I was done. That was an experience that I wasn't going to be able to recover from. What sucks even worse than that whole thing was the, one of the first calls I made 
after was to my bishop to say, mm-hmm. what do I do? I'm in this mm-hmm. predicament. And my te- temple recommend got taken away and his did not. And that was like super hard on me. It felt like, I mean, I was violated and mm-hmm. there was somebody who wasn't respecting me and my person and my body and playing into my fears about my queerness. And, and yet I'm the one who's being punished, you know? my gosh, that's so hard. And I I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing this part of your story, because I know there's going to be people that see themselves in your story. I'm afraid that sexual abuse and assault is part of a lot of people's stories, whether it's maybe someone trying to prove to them that, oh, no, you're not gay, see, or trying to prove to themselves that they can make it work. You know, I think one reason I'm receiving additional training to become a sex therapist is because how messed up sex is in Mormon culture and for people who grow up Mormon, we don't talk about sex education. So how can we talk about consent? And, you know, you went along with it. That doesn't mean it's consent, right? I don't know if you have more you want to add. I know this is a very intensely personal and vulnerable thing to be sharing to however many people listen to this. I wasn't sure if you had more to add about that. No, not right now. (laughs) Okay. Well, I I appreciate you sharing because like I said, uh, unfortunately, I think it is a lot of people's reality is to have different sexual abuse, sexual assault playing into their story in one way or another. And I'm so sorry that had to be part of your story and that you were then further punished for it when I don't believe in a God that would do that for you. And that's one thing we probably talk about is the idea of leadership roulette. And, you know, in my episode talking about how I lost my temple recommend, but the Bishop gave it back so I could prove I had one. So I wouldn't lose my job. But what would have happened if I had a different Bishop who was like, "Mm, sorry, consequences, you know, leadership roulette is so real and super familiar to a lot of people who are queer and Mormon. Do you have more to say about the idea with leadership roulette and how you've been impacted by that? Yeah, for sure. So this is the same bishop, the same bishop who took my temple recommend away. I had to wait a number of months to get it back and go through the whole process. During that process, I was meeting with him about being in love with a woman And he was receiving phone calls and people who were threatening me were trying to threaten me through the bishop. And he happened to also have my back. There were so few people I felt that I had in my Latter-day Saint corner during that time. And it happened to be that the bishop who took my temple recommend away was the same bishop who happened to be in my corner and protected me from mm-hmm. state, a stake president who wanted to discipline me based on rumors and speculation. He met with me all of the time to talk about queer issues, and he affirmed what I felt, and he affirmed the love that I felt for another woman and he understood that he didn't quite understand it completely (laughs) but he understood me he understood he saw me he he really wanted to know me and help me and not Mm -hmm. just 
set me aside for a rule or whatever. So in the beginning, that's what it was, right? He, Mm -hmm. it was like, here's the rule. You broke it. This this is a consequence. And then after that, it was, no, we have to like dive into this a little bit deeper. And yeah, so that was super helpful for me. I think that there is Bishop Roulette and so many people are Mm -hmm. not having that experience. For me, I don't think I would be here if I hadn't been in California, if I hadn't had this Bishop. Yeah, I just... The suicidality was too much at that point. And this is where, you know, we talk about a lot of the hard parts of our story and how pretty much every queer person I know that grows up Mormon has dealt with suicidality to some extent. What would you be willing to share more about your experience? I know you'd mentioned suicide attempts even. How how much are you able to share about your experience with suicidality? Yeah, I... My uncle died by suicide when I was 12. And by the time I was 13, I was thinking about it. By the time I was 13, I thought, I remember specifically going to my mom with a newspaper article that was about suicide from the Salt Lake Tribune and saying, you know what Rusty did, this is, I'm thinking about it too. So I remember being very young and this this coming up for me and it was so shameful Mm -hmm. I felt so much shame about Mm -hmm. wanting to wanting to die all the time I think that's what keeps people from talking about it is there's so much shame about that strong strong desire and the thoughts that constantly come up or whatever so from 13 to 19 thought about it pretty often it -hmm. comes a lot with self-harm as well and when I was 19 I was in love with a friend again Mm -hmm. like this this is a recurring theme of my life to (laughs) fall in love with a friend as you well know and I think I've always fallen for for bisexual or pansexual people I have theories about that about what that says about my gender (laughs) like I think that (laughs) those those people have an insight into my gender before I do Mm -hmm. and yeah was like I'm cutting myself off from my bisexual part of myself which Mm -hmm. has happened also happened multiple times see no I'm not bisexual I'm only gonna pursue this this other the socially acceptable sex that's also detrimental Mm -hmm. right for bisexual and pansexual folks like that's such a hard road to walk but for me to be falling in love with these folks is also really difficult and so it was I couldn't admit that she knew it and would say really really hurtful things Mm -hmm. or like make out with people with men just to like Mm -hmm. get at me and I just felt Mm -hmm. like this there's nothing safe about this there's nothing safe about any of my friendships the, the suicide attempt at 19 was very much related to not being able to come out as queer yeah, and, and it be safe. Uh, I just, again, appreciate your vulnerability and realness in this. And I think that highlights a few things. One, I always want to point people to resources if they themselves are feeling suicidal or if they know someone that is. I didn't realize this until I was certified QPR, Quest and Participate Refer Trainer, that 
the majority of people that call the suicide hotline are not suicide themselves. They're calling on behalf of someone to know how to help and how to handle. So if you or someone you know, please use these resources. You can Google or look on our website for these resources. But I think you sharing that story also highlights the inherent potential in unsafeness of being closeted. Because what would it have been like if you had been able to be out? This is me. I'm attracted to women. I'm in this relationship. Would it have turned out differently? Like I know that I was in a not ideal relationship for me at one point in time, but I couldn't talk to anyone about it because it was a queer relationship. And did I stay in that not great relationship longer if I had been able to be out and people could have said, Hey, maybe this is a kind of toxic relationship for you. I don't know if that resonates at all to you. Yeah, absolutely. We, so I was 19 when let's see, 2005. So Mm -hmm. that's only six years. It's it's within the same decade as Matthew Shepard. It's in the same Mm -hmm. decade as Ellen. Like Mm -hmm. it's, 10 years before same-sex marriage is legal in the United States that I was fearful because I had seen these other examples Mm -hmm. of what was happening in the world to these people. This isn't, I think so often we, we are now reducing this to a Latter-day Saint problem without thinking that, you know, just 20 years ago, this was a United States problem that the way that we're treating queer people within the church was the way that we treated queer people just 20 years ago was not safe for many of us to be out just in general. So yeah, I think having that longer historical perspective might give us some comfort and hope that things can get better and get better very quickly and dramatically. But I I did want to say that suicidality has to be, we have to get rid of the shame around talking about it because, I mean, that's the thing that, that is really what puts us in danger is that you can't talk about it. And it's not just that you can't talk about it because of the shame or whatever, like there are legitimate real world consequences of admitting these sorts of things that you can't, there are certain things that you're not going to be able to do because you said that these sorts of things about yourself. We have to be able to get rid of and dismantle those systems that say you're going to have consequences for the rest of your life, being able to talk about this or when you talk about this or admitting this. So yeah, I think there are lots of different resources and places to go, but this is a systemic problem. It needs to be fixed in a lot of different ways from the ground up. And the kind of the last resort are these hotlines and things, but they're a great last resort. And I talk often about, I've used them Mm -hmm. within the past few within the past year, I've used these resources and I'm not, I do feel shame about that, but I'm not, I'm willing to try to push through that shame in order to, for somebody else to say, okay, I also Mm -hmm. need to, or I should, or I have, because Mm -hmm. it's happening. It's taking place. The queer experience within Mormonism is challenging and we do need to rely on these sources resources and people 
especially allies need to recognize that this is what we're going through and we have to be able to talk about it. You have to be able to open up the space for us to be able to talk about that. Yeah, I, I know I've said before, when I was wrestling with my sexuality and spirituality, it felt like I had to either kill off the Mormon side of me or the queer side of me. And since I couldn't choose, I just wanted to kill off all of me. <laughs> and I didn't mean to laugh, but like that was the reality that it just, the pain was so intense and it felt so real. There didn't seem to be a way forward. And so why keep trying? And so that is a very real thing that many of us end up dealing with. And we need to be able to talk about it, not to encourage it, not to encourage suicide or suicidality, but to normalize it so that we can talk about it so that people can get the help they need so that systems can be in place so that there aren't further harms that people unknowingly do to others that increase the risk for these things. Oh my gosh, that was so great. Thank you for that. (laughs) Absolutely, we do need to normalize the the conversation. The, The way you put it was perfect, thank you. I'm trying to think. We've been talking about a lot about your experience and there is so much and not sure what do you still want to talk about? Are there things you wish I had asked? You're very good at asking questions. I think that we've touched on everything I want to. I'm sure that as we go forward with more episodes that we'll hear more of both of our stories. So I'm not, I'm not worried about that. All right, then we will wrap this up for today. We appreciate you all listening and if what we're saying and talking about resonates with you please feel free to follow rate review and share and please follow along you can reach us on instagram and facebook at called to queer and our website is called to queer.com we will talk to you next week